This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. <laughs> How much of that did you want to grab today? I would love to grab a quarter ounce. Quarter ounce of the Skywalker. <laughs> it's a Tuesday night, right before midnight. I'm standing around in a parking lot near the airport, waiting to buy weed. This wasn't an illicit transaction. At midnight of October 1st, recreational marijuana legally went on sale in Oregon. And I have to admit something, which is, um, which is, I have never actually purchased pot before. I know that's hard to believe because I'm in my 20s and I live in Portland, but it's true. I'm just not that interested in weed. I've always thought that smoking pot is honestly pretty boring. Even worse than smoking weed is talking about smoking weed. Wait, I get flashbacks to the endless stoner conversations I endured at high school parties. But when I went out to the opening of the recreational marijuana store last week near the airport, I found something that was really interesting. I talked with the co-founder of the shop, which was named Shango. The co-founder's name is Shane McKee. He wore a gold chain and a nice jacket. As we waited in the lobby in front of a heavy locked door, he told me what to expect inside the marijuana dispensary. So you check their ID, you check their card. Uh, at that point, they would be let into the showroom, and uh, we would encourage them to check out our tablets and our menus that we have that are educational and look at some of the genetics on the wall where the uh, crystal sconces were. Did you say check out the genetics on the wall next to the crystal sconces? Yeah, strains, species, different types. Oh, okay. Yeah, flavors. I'm not exactly sure what I was expecting from a recreational marijuana store, but it certainly wasn't crystal sconces. As the clock hit midnight, the 40 or so people who had been waiting outside poured into the dispensary. Inside waiting for them was a fancy display. Along the wall, a row of clear cases held marijuana flowers, each labeled with their strain and growing conditions. It kind of felt like a cross between an upscale artesian restaurant and a weed museum. Also inside were a group of men wearing sports coats. They seemed to be surveying the crowd. The staff told me that those guys were all Las Vegas investors. This little weed outlet by the airport is actually owned by a company based in Nevada. They own a string of marijuana stores around the West. It's clear that there is massive money to be made in marijuana, and they want to be in on it. As I stood there at the marijuana midnight opening party, surrounded by an upbeat crowd excited about the new horizons of the cannabis industry, I started thinking a lot about the people who weren't there. The gender and race dynamics of the marijuana industry are very interesting, even if, like me, you've never wanted to buy weed in your life. Actually, buying weed turned out to be a little overwhelming, honestly. As I gazed at all the edible marijuana items at the checkout counter, I just had way too many options. We've got these, like, lollipops, we've got some taffy, we've got these squishy things that are called lunchbox alchemy. We've got something called Jolly Greens, Shango Chocolates, LB's Edibles, Astral Sweets. I have no, I have no idea. As somebody who has never purchased marijuana, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, the Lunchbox Alchemy ones look really cute. You think those are good? The squib is the best. Go for the squib. 100 milligrams. 10 bucks, 100 milligrams. Is that, that, is that good? Thing. Is that 100 milligrams like a lot of milligrams? It'll, it'll, it'll get you on the couch, yeah, it'll put you on it, couch locked a little bit. It turned out that I couldn't buy anything edible, 
Even though recreational marijuana is legal, only people with medical marijuana cards can buy medical-filled gummies or snacks. So I would have to buy marijuana in its smokable form. The clerk handed me a big box of joints. Unlike any joint you've ever seen in a college dorm room, these legally bought and sold joints are packaged individually, conveniently pre-rolled and sealed in little plastic tubes. On the side of each tube is an official-looking type. On the side of each tube is an official-looking label. It lists out the name of the marijuana variety and its levels of THC and cannabinoids. It looks kind of like a marijuana nutritional label. Now, I am not a weed connoisseur, so I just chose two joints based on their names. I guess I'll take an Obama Kush and a Skywalker. Good choice on the Skywalker. Like it or not, cannabis is a huge industry. But unlike most giant industries, this one is just starting to be built. Right now. There are lots of problems and growing pains because it's so new and so quasi-legal under federal law. For example, I had to pay for my Skywalker and Obama Kush with cash because marijuana dispensaries cannot accept credit cards. There's huge problems around banking. Basically, the legal marijuana industry, which made $2.7 billion last year and is projected to reach $11 billion by 2019, runs entirely on cash. Billions and billions of dollars in cash. On the West Coast, the cannabis industry is now the stuff of glossy magazines. Pot shop owners get profiled as up-and-coming entrepreneurs. If you've seen a weekly newspaper in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, or California recently, they are packed with ads for marijuana dispensaries and gear and growing supplies. But for decades, laws against marijuana have hurt certain communities more than others. Specifically, African Americans have been twice as likely to be arrested for marijuana crimes than white people. Now that marijuana is becoming a big legal business, who will be part of that business? Will people who have been hurt the most by drug laws be part of the industry now that it's legal? Or will cannabis become business as usual? Business that is dominated by white men who have the money to bankroll new startups. The newness of the industry creates some problems, but it also presents enormous opportunity to build an industry from scratch. Imagine if we could go back in time to when Silicon Valley was just gearing up and say, hey, no way are the people running this show going to be all rich white dudes. Well, we don't have a time machine. Instead, some people who care about racial and gender equity are trying to make the future of cannabis one that includes the people who are usually left out. Amid all the celebrations of the new marijuana industry, there are some people who cannot attend the parties. People who are in jail, serving time for crimes that are now legal, like possession of marijuana. People often think that if a state decriminalizes or legalizes marijuana, then the people in jail for marijuana get retroactively pardoned. That would be a logical thing to assume, but that doesn't happen. In Oregon in 2014, there were 200 people still behind bars for nonviolent marijuana offenses that are now legal. Just this week, the Obama administration announced that 6,000 people with nonviolent drug offenses would be let out of jail. That's huge news. But it doesn't change the reality that when a state legalizes or decriminalizes marijuana, those people don't automatically have their sentences reduced. Instead, reducing the impact of our past drug laws takes a big act of political will. One person who's thought long and hard about the people impacted by marijuana laws is Lou Frederick. Lou is a politician, an African-American state representative from North Portland who works a lot on issues of racial equity and incarceration. It is very clear that uh, although the use of marijuana uh, 
and the sale of marijuana uh, for in the past was across all cultural and and ethnic boundaries. Uh, there, there, it was it was about the same for all of those particular groups. The arrest records, the uh, convictions, uh, and the, the 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 length of sentences was almost always clearly disproportionate regarding minorities, African Americans in particular, um, in the in the in the rest of the country. While there's some people in jail for marijuana crimes, there's a lot more, about 26,000 in Oregon, who are out of jail but still have felonies on their records from nonviolent marijuana-related crimes. Those lingering felonies create huge problems, which Lou hears about often. But what, what this means is that if you want to get housing, uh, if you want to get housing, uh, renting a, an, an apartment somewhere, uh, often there is a a uh, checkoff on whether you've had a drug conviction. Uh, and, and, and if you want to get uh, jobs, you know, we all know about the, the, uh, uh, the box, ban the box approach in terms of jobs, but that is also one of the places that you don't get a chance to uh, even have the, the conversation about it. Uh, once, once you have that conviction on your record, you, you are immediately um, dismissed as not available for that particular housing. Probably the most insidious situation for me has been that if you have a marijuana conviction and you want to get a, uh, a scholarship, in many cases you can't even get a scholarship, which means that stops you from education on a number of other levels, and that can, that can then create problems. In the last legislative session, Lou proposed a law that would help thousands of people with nonviolent marijuana felonies clear their records to get a clean slate. The idea became law. Lou says it got a lot of support and passed easily in the majority Democrat legislature. But legally, it feels like the people who have been hurt by decades of policing marijuana are often an afterthought in all the hoopla around cannabis. No, it's clear that if you had money, you could start putting money into it. And for a lot of folks, they didn't have that money. And uh, the people, some of the folks who actually probably know more about the, uh, the industry or know more about the the, the plants and the and the quality uh, had been left out of it because of uh, the, all the legal things that had taken place um, in the past. The fact is, we have had a war on drugs for uh, several decades now. Um, I think that we, I hope that we will, by way of some of this expunction, uh, folks, uh, finally start dealing with the prisoners of that war, and uh, and and letting them uh, finally reintegrate into the, uh, into the community and get a sense of, of what's going to be effective. Here's something surprising. As states like Washington, Oregon, and Colorado have legalized marijuana, nationwide, arrests for marijuana crimes have gone up, not down. Reform group the Drug Policy Alliance keeps track of these arrests. Amanda Raymond, who works for the Drug Policy Alliance, reports that in 2014, someone was arrested in the United States for marijuana every 45 seconds. Even though marijuana arrests dropped significantly in states where it's now legal, overall in the country we saw an increase of 7,000 arrests. So what that means is that the arrests that are not happening in states where it's legal are increasing in states where it's illegal. So we're starting to see those states that are still holding on to prohibition, the citizens of those states are bearing the brunt of this enforcement. 
The increase of marijuana arrests seems weird to me. I mean, it seems like our attitude toward pot is evolving as a nation. We're becoming more tolerant of marijuana. What once got many people thrown in jail is now the basis of a burgeoning industry. So why would marijuana arrests increase? Um, a lot of law enforcement communities uh, are financially dependent on the war on marijuana. It's the most commonly used illicit substance. It's com- very easy to tell when someone's using it because it's very smelly. Um, it's often used by young people, by people that the police are trying to keep tabs on for other reasons. Uh, police departments get federal funding specifically to eradicate marijuana. I asked Amanda about the disconnect between the people who are more likely to be arrested for marijuana crimes versus the people who are now pouring into the legal marijuana industries. Do you know if it's overwhelmingly, if it's more likely to be white people involved in that industry? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't even need to do any kind of formalized survey to tell you that. Um, You know, I've been involved in this for 15 years. I've been going to these conferences and meetings of the industry for 15 years. And I will tell you who's at these meetings and who's at these conferences with all this industry and this money and this investment. It's white men. And I think it's something that people recognize, but it's hard to combat that because of the way the laws are in place, looking at who ends up with criminal records, who has the capital in order to make this kind of investment. Who, has, who is risk-adverse enough to make this kind of investment in a new and burgeoning industry? And that tends to be white men who have a lot of capital. For years now, people have helped change the perception of marijuana by arguing that it should be just like any other industry. But it's not just like any other industry, says Amanda Raymond, nor should it be. Policing of marijuana has wreaked havoc on communities. It would be a shame if the marijuana industry didn't help repair that damage. Until we really acknowledge the war on drugs and the role the war on drugs has played in creating this situation and also creating certain communities that have become reliant on the illicit sales of marijuana for their financial well-being, we're not going to create a system that's going to do what we want it to do, which is to end discrimination and criminalization and create an equal opportunity industry. 